Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to episode number 152 of the Necessary Roughness podcast, presented by Last Word on Sports. I'm your host, Nicholas Donatic. Hope you all are having a wonderful week as we get into week 13 of the NFL season. We're certainly in the home stretch at this point. Nothing super eventful in Thursday night football. I guess we could talk about some Mac Jones. Maybe we'll throw that in there when we get into the pick'em portion. But for now, we're going to keep it pretty vanilla. We're going to jump straight in to our standout seven. And as usual, first three, we're going bigger story. Bigger story, the Denver Broncos, and I, I hate to jump the gun here, Bronco fans, but let's call it a spade a spade here. Uh, the Denver Broncos failed season, or their division rivals, the Las Vegas Raiders failed season. And you can make the argument there should be an honorable mention here of the Green Bay Packers, but, well, we'll talk Packers a little later in the show. So let's get started with Denver. Um, They come into this season acquiring a quarterback who many would argue is on a Hall of Fame trajectory, uh, at the least. He's pretty far into his career at this point, and Russell Wilson has been pretty darn consistent, bearing in mind the handful of injuries here and there nagging at him, but realistically, I mean, the guy started 16 games every season from his age 24 to age 32 seasons in Seattle. Um, They were almost a perennial contender, honestly, except for his last season there. Um, We're talking one incredible play at the goal line from being a two-time Super Bowl champion, right? Um, It was very weird to me how quickly things have come out nowadays about how it ended in Seattle. I think we touched on it a few episodes ago that Pete Carroll credited Geno Smith being willing to wear a quarterback wristband, something that he thought would help take the offense to the next level. And evidently, by saying that, implying that Russell Wilson was uh, not exactly receptive to that uh, suggestion by his head coach. I mean, to defend Russ a little bit in a year that he's been getting slammed, I don't think the guy really had a bad year in his entire career before this one. I mean, we go through 26-10 and 10 as a rookie, touchdowns to INTs, obviously, 26-9, and 20-7, 34-8, and 21-11, 34-11, we start to see the transition of them becoming more of a passing team, 35-7, and 31-5, 40 touchdowns to 13 interceptions, 25-6 uh, to 6 in his final year in Seattle, the only year he had a losing record as a starter. Um, mind you... By the end there, second to last season, he was at 68.8% completion percentage, which was a career high, but he had been pretty much anywhere between one to year low at 61, anywhere between 63 and 68. This year, he's sitting closer to 59, which is clearly down. I mean, he's only got five picks, but he's only thrown eight TDs. The yards per attempt right now would be the lowest of his career. Um, is part of it the diminishing athleticism? Would you make that argument? I'm not certain. I mean, you look early in the career of Russell Wilson, especially his third year, he ran for 850 yards, right? But in 2016, a year where, you know, Seattle goes 12-4, and he throws 20 touchdowns, 7 picks, he only runs for 259 yards. 
It's nothing crazy. The scrambleability, if you will, or ability to just kind of run around, run around, playground style, until a play can be made, is part of his game. It's a big part of his game, if we're being completely honest. But that's not to say that he was ever really Lamar Jackson out there. He was agile and athletic, but I would say that he did it in a way to aid his passing rather than to supplement their passing game. I don't know where I'm going with this. If I'm being completely honest with you folks, I'm just getting to the point that, you know, right now he's got 130 rushing yards, which would be a career low for a season. It's not unheard of for a QB's athleticism to dwindle as he gets older. I don't know what went wrong with this team. If we're talking on paper, Javante Williams obviously getting injured did not help, but by the time Javante Williams was injured, I believe he'd already played... I mean, he was, they were 2-2 two and two with Javante Williams, but he had never carried the ball more than 15 times. It's not like he was carrying them to victories. I mean, one of, their, one of those wins was an 11-10, to 10, and the other was 16-9. to 9. It's a first-year head coach in Nathaniel Hackett, and that's certainly part of it, but... I mean, Hackett has been at least involved in offensive staffs that have been successful in the NFL, you know? I mean, he was the OC down in Jacksonville in 17, and that Jacksonville team was actually good. Remember, they almost went to the Super Bowl. Then he goes back to Green Bay after regime change, and obviously... It's Green Bay. It's a successful offense. You walk in and it's still successful. Um, it's it's kind of odd that this team has been this bad. The defense is pretty darn good. Obviously, they wind up trading away Bradley Chubb, which is intriguing. They don't trade Jerry Judy, which is even more intriguing. You weaken your weakness and try, or weaken your strength rather, and try and uh, keep your weakness as strong as it can be. This team's not going anywhere, and I don't know what's going to happen in the offseason. I said before, if you're with us in the preseason, I mentioned this, I was very skeptical of their decision to give Russ an extension before he ever played a game in their jersey. Considering the amount that they traded for him, considering the fact he was under contract already, it felt like a risky move, and it was, right? Maybe he'll rebound next year. Maybe this team will rebound next year and they'll be a playoff team. But I think they need significant changes. Now let's talk about a team that also probably needs significant changes, but probably can't make them as easily. Um, I don't think anyone in Bronco Nation, if you will, and look, if you disagree with me, let me know. Stands, as always, comment section, if where you're listening has one, or on social media, all social media, at Nick Donatic, N-I-K-D-O-N-A-D-I-C. I don't think anyone in Bronco Nation would bat an eyelid at the firing of Nathaniel Hackett, to be quite honest. Whether that's to bring in Coach XYZ, pick a coordinator you like, right? Pick a head coach who doesn't have a job right now that you like. Pick pick Chip Kelly, anybody, right? I don't think they would mind. You take a look at the Raiders, well... The Raiders don't have too many plays left in the playbook. Now, they're 4-7. and seven. They're a little bit better of a spot. You could make the argument. I would not. But you could make the argument they could make the run, right? 
You take a look right now at the AFC. You've got the Chiefs at the one, the Bills at the two seed. You've got Ravens by tiebreaker at three, Titans at four. Flip-flop that around, depending on which tiebreaker matters. Um, The first wild card would be Miami. The second would be Cincinnati. The third would right now be the New York Jets. You've got the Chargers behind them, the Patriots behind them, and then you get to a gaggle of four and seven teams, including the uninspiring Las Vegas Raiders. Um, But they've won two in a row, so you never know. I just put it out there. Then again, if you say they're in it, then Denver's in it too. The reason I say there's less plays in the playbook, so to speak here, obviously metaphorical, is they've brought in the star receiver, right? If Denver goes out and spends big or trades big for a star wide out, right? Then you could say, all right, well, new lease, right? They went and got Josh McDaniels. Josh McDaniels, who was offensively inclined. Josh McDaniels, who at one point was very high in demand, was almost the coach of the Indianapolis Colts, remember? And uh, after watching the Raiders this year, I think the Colts got off lucky um, that he reneged on his agreement with them, which was the reported thing. What are they going to do? Now, are they going to bring back Josh Jacobs? I don't know. I think Josh has been a productive back in the NFL pretty much his whole career. Wouldn't be a bad idea. Would they want to go out and see if they could get someone like Saquon Barkley? Is that really an improvement? considering what you might have to pay to lure him away to the West Coast instead of just re-signing your guy? Or do you think that you burned that bridge with your guy and now you might have to pay up anyway? It's intriguing. You look at their receiving core when healthy. Devontae Adams, elite level number one, right? Mac Hollins has had a breakout year, I would say, to break into the ranks of productive NFL wideouts. Um, Hunter Renfro obviously has had the, issue, the issues with injuries this year, but he's a productive receiver usually, or at the least a reliable receiver. You add in Darren Waller, who's getting older, who got a contract extension, who has missed significant time with injuries. And you're kind of locked in to this offensive core. You're locked into your head coach. You're also locked into a division where Patrick Mahomes and Andy Reid aren't going anywhere. Justin Herbert and potentially a new head coach will be staring you in the eye. And, uh, well, you're looking at Denver, and and you guys are just kind of shrugging your shoulders at each other and wondering, well, somebody's got to come in last, don't they? You take a look at the defensive side. I don't think the Raiders' defense has been especially bad, if I'm being honest. I think this was a team that was supposed to be carried by a strong offense. You look at some of the games they've lost. They lose 24-19 in Week 1 to the Chargers at L.A. It's a tough one. They lose in OT at Arizona in a weird one. That was the play where Renfro in overtime winds up getting a concussion on the play where he fumbles the ball, if memory serves. They lose by two to Tennessee, who's a playoff team right now. They lose by one to Kansas City. They somehow get blown out by New Orleans. Throw that out, you know, throw that out with the bathwater. They lose by a touchdown to Jacksonville. They lose by five to Indianapolis with a brand spanking new head coach. So... This Raider team is just a little bit short. Just a hair short of, you know, potentially having completely flipped record. Call it 7-4, and four, right? These are a lot of one-score losses, and you see they're suffering from almost the opposite 
of what the New York Giants are, you know, relishing in. Obviously, they're on a little bit of a skid, but they were having immense success in one-score games. And it's not something you can bottle up, right? And obviously, I'm not an NFL veteran, but it, it doesn't take a rocket surgeon, excuse the mixed metaphor, albeit intentional, to tell you that it's not a skill you develop per se, it's just the grit that you can fall back on that's coached in or whatever you want to call it. Use as many cliches as you want. I think on paper, this Raiders team is better than the New York Giants. However, they don't play the games on paper. When they go out on the field, Brian Dayball and the Giants coaching staff and Wink Martindale gets them to play better than the guys like Josh McDaniels and Nathaniel Hackett get them to play. That's why it's intriguing when you see a guy like Mike Purcell that I don't know anyone would call Mike Purcell a star in the NFL, right? Not knocking Mike Purcell. He's a decent player. But I don't think even Mike Purcell would call himself that. He wouldn't argue that he's had the the career or the pedigree of a guy like Russell Wilson, who, like I said, Hall of Fame trajectory, he'll probably wind up getting in. But Mike Purcell felt the need to call out his starting quarterback on the sideline. And I'm not here to tell you he was wrong. I think when you're a member of the Broncos defense and you play as hard as you can, as often as you can, because they're on the field a bit, it can be frustrating that the guy bringing in the big paycheck, the guy who was brought in to be the savior, simply can't save you. And I understand how that boils over. To answer the larger overarching question here, the worst failed season, or I'd say the more surprising failed season, would be the Raiders. But as I said, you know, the one-score games really fall into it. The worst failed season would be Denver, because they were the hyped-up team. And I don't think that's much of a question. That was just an opportunity to really, you know, be Captain Obvious, which we do now and again on this show. But, you know, that brings up another interesting point. So, and I know you guys love when I cross sports and to to bring metaphors here, but in baseball, they discuss frequently, um, especially on shows like MLB Now, if you watch the MLB Network, or if you listen to some general managers or executives speak on baseball as a large, at large rather, they say frequently that the postseason is a crapshoot, right? And it kind of reminds me of what I'm hearing and or thinking when they talk about one-score games, right? You know, sometimes the ball will bounce your way and sometimes it won't. Well, if that's the case, then how do we ever properly evaluate Team XYZ, right? Throw in a team, whatever team, it doesn't matter. How do we properly evaluate these things? At the end of the year, Mark Davis is going to have a meeting with Josh McDaniels, presumably, uh, and or members of the front office, and he's going to say, what the hell happened? We went out there, and we we went out and we bid for the best receiver on the market, and not only we bid for him, we got him. And it really wasn't much of a bidding war to what the public understands, right? It was presumed he would go to Las Vegas, and he did go to Las Vegas. It was open and shut. But somehow, here they are. Like I said, I wouldn't say they're the bigger failure, because technically they're still in it, and look, if the luck starts to turn, you never know. But to this point, I would say they are more shocking to me that they have failed in this fashion. Number two in the standout seven, 
keeping it more on the week-to-week here. We're going big picture because it's almost the end of the year. you got to understand that one. Uh, worst loss this last weekend, the Baltimore Ravens at the Jacksonville Jaguars or the Tampa Bay Buccaneers at the Cleveland Browns. Now, I say that, you know, adding the dramatic or comedic effect of the team names, but let's be frank here. Jacksonville, coming into this season, had an infinite amount of question marks. Namely, would their quarterback that they took number one, who was a lock, actually be a lock? Well, we just saw Trevor Lawrence had the best game of his NFL career. And I think we were talking a few weeks ago when we were talking Giants and Jets, which is damn near all the time, obviously, as you know, I mentioned every episode, New York-centric, it's just bound to happen. Um, Either way, we were talking about having that moment that sticks out to make the fan base feel, well, look, even if we're not winning, we saw this. This This is a good sign, right? This was the good sign for Jacksonville fans. Next year, presumably at least, you're going to have Calvin Ridley. Pretty darn good player at the wide receiver position. You have Travis Etienne, who is developing into a pretty darn good running back and has chemistry with your starting quarterback. You have a head coach who has been to and won a Super Bowl, which not a lot of teams can say. Um, You've gotten production here and there out of Zay Jones and Christian Kirk. I thought they overpaid for Kirk. I think you could argue they still did. But, and you've even had a little bit of production here and there out of Evan Ingram. So I, I don't, you know my opinion on Evan Ingram if you've been around for a while. If not, well, you can guess from my tone. Um, and you have some playmakers on this defense that have kept you in some games. This was the moment. You know, I was talking about Zach Wilson. Where's the moment, right? Daniel Jones. People like to look back at that, that win he had forever ago against Tampa Bay. Didn't mean anything to me. Didn't. The win he had late in the year against Washington. You know what that meant to me? It cost the New York Giants Chase Young. That's what that meant to me. That's a big loss, if we're being honest. Anyway, back to the matter at hand. This is a huge loss for the Baltimore Ravens. And after the game, you have the whole thing with Lamar Jackson beefing with some random person on social media or something or whatever. I mean, he goes 50% completion percentage for 254 yards. I mean, your second leading receiver is Deshaun Jackson. That's not it, guys. That is not going to beat Kansas City. That's not going to beat Cincinnati. I mean, looking at the way Pittsburgh played, that may not even beat Pittsburgh. I get it. You know, he ran for 89 yards. Tremendous, yeah. He racked up over 350 all-purpose. Cool. 50% completion percentage, really? Against the Jags? You lost to the Jags when they ran for under 50 yards as a team? As a team? Like, the one-dimensional Jaguars beat you? How is that possible? This will almost certainly come back to bite Baltimore, as they play the aforementioned Denver Broncos, then they have Pittsburgh, They still have a game remaining, is what I'm getting at, to end the season with the Cincinnati Bengals. Now, they have more of a softball schedule than the Bengals do. I wouldn't argue that. I wouldn't argue against that. I don't know if anyone would. The Bengals have Kansas City. 
They still have Tampa Bay. They still have New England. They still have Buffalo, right? But if you can lose to Jacksonville, you can lose to anybody. Baltimore, by the way. Denver, Pittsburgh, Cleveland, Atlanta, Pittsburgh again on New Year's Day and ending the season against the Bengals. Huge loss. Let's talk Tampa Bay. What was this game? I mean, you look at the box score, which you can't tell a lot from, if we're being completely honest. You look at the box score, you cannot tell the flow of the game. You can't tell really all too much except for the totals, obviously. Nick Chubb had a pretty darn good game. The Browns' rushing game was pretty darn good, putting up close to 200 yards. Jacoby Brissett didn't do anything crazy. All I can remember is Tampa Bay sitting on the ball at the end of regulation. You have Tom Brady, the greatest quarterback of all time. You have Chris Godwin. You have guys like Julio Jones, Mike Evans. You have contributors in this offense that we don't even think of. And you're sitting on the ball and just going to go to overtime, and let's see what happens. Why? It's either a bonehead coaching move, which is, you know, up there with... uh, I don't know, up there with Kirk Cousins kneeling instead of spiking the ball, right? It it doesn't make sense to me. I It doesn't make sense to me. And they mismanage the clock, and then they, they run the clock down just to throw the ball, and they wind up within spitting distance of field goal range, but they ran down so much clock it didn't matter. And I can't comprehend what the rationale there was. Um... Will it wind up costing them? The bigger loss for me, to spoil it, is going to be Baltimore, because Baltimore is in a very competitive situation. I don't think Tampa Bay is really scared. Now, should they be? Yeah. Yeah, they should. They are a half game ahead of the Falcons. A Falcons team that is decent. I mean, they're 4-2 and two at home. They're 1-5 and five on the road, but they're 4-2 and two at home. They're a pretty decent team. The Carolina Panthers, for everything they've done wrong this year, 4-8, and eight, New Orleans 4-8, and eight, they're within spitting distance of this division lead. Right? It's, it's insane to me. But I don't think Tampa Bay is scared. I think they fall back on, we have Tom Brady, we have the pedigree, we've done this before, we have great players, we have the talent, we'll get it done when it matters. I tend to agree, right? I mean... They've got New Orleans on Monday Night Football, a team that has historically given Tom Brady trouble for some reason or other. They go to Santa Clara to play San Fran, which is going to be a hard game. They play Cincinnati, like we just said. Hard game. They go to Arizona. Who knows what that game will represent on Christmas, uh, or scheduled for Christmas in the evening right now. Who knows if things get flexed or whatever. Um, They play Carolina, and they play Atlanta. Those last two games could determine who wins this division. I mean, are they going to be over 500? Right now, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers with Tom Brady are sitting at 5-6. and six. Does this team beat San Francisco? I don't think so. Does this team beat Cincinnati? I don't think so. That's eight losses. They have to beat New Orleans, Arizona, Carolina, and Atlanta. Very doable. Very doable. If this team was clicking, they could beat Cincinnati. But they're just not. It's a scary loss for Tampa Bay. But I think the worst loss 
is Baltimore. Bigger surprising step back this year. Tampa Bay or the Rams? This one's an interesting one. Because it's bigger than just the obvious, oh, you know, uh, who had the worst loss? Who had the worst this and that? So the LA Rams are the defending champs, right? People, I assume you haven't forgotten that. It hasn't been that long, folks. It's only December. That was this calendar year. Matthew Stafford, I made the argument on the air here, was setting out for a late career renaissance. He looked pretty darn good. Late in the season last year, the INTs started to tick up, up, up. And then we had in the offseason the issue, oh, he might have a problem with his elbow. And that was concerning, and I'm still concerned about that. Um, Report Stafford not going to go this week because of the concussion, though he's out of the protocol. Either way, coming into this season, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers had a division they were going to pretty much sleepwalk through. And the Rams had a division which looked more competitive. Arizona was one of the best teams in the league at points last year. If you told me San Francisco was going to trade for Christian McCaffrey, I certainly would have had them higher than I thought they would be. And Seattle has been the surprise of the season. So for that reason, I would say the bigger shock or disappointment thus far has been Tampa Bay. Um, When you consider that Tampa Bay brought back so many of their pieces... One of the big things that jump-started that L.A. playoff run and even into the Super Bowl was Odell Beckham, right? The addition of Odell Beckham and the fact that, I mean, Stafford had another wideout he could trust. You saw in the Super Bowl, OBJ was en route to a Super Bowl MVP. I'm not the only one to say that. I'm far from the last one who will mention it as he's going through his free agency saga, but it was pretty clear he was putting on a tour de force and they were going to do their thing. With Cup and OBJ... It was uh, it was going to be hard to stop for the Cincinnati defense. Cup goes down. Excuse me, not Cup. OBJ goes down. And we immediately have a lull on the offensive side of the ball. And it was apparent very quickly that it was going to be hard for them to move the ball when all the attention was on Cooper Cup. And that's why they went out and signed Allen Robinson, a guy that, as I've mentioned before, I haven't been super duper high on. But... Nonetheless, everybody else in the league is pretty darn high on. So it's unfortunate that so far his time there has been not so great. But when you consider the division and everything and the injuries that have come down, I'd say Tampa Bay has been more surprising because it should have been an easier road. Number four in the standout seven, we briefly mentioned Kyler Murray. Let's talk about Kyler Murray, and the Arizona Cardinals. Um, Cardinals went out and played a a pretty decent game against the L.A. Chargers, if we're being completely honest, right? Then, after the game, after I believe the Chargers took the lead with a two-point conversion in the fourth on a late drive, it was was pretty darn impressive. 25-24 instead of going to OT, right? Justin Herbert goes for 275, three touchdowns. The running game was... Not even really attempted. On the other side, Kyler Murray, throw for a buck 90, two touchdowns on a pick. Nothing crazy, but James Conner did his thing. 120 yards on the ground. Um, After the game, people were talking about maybe there should have been more targets for DeAndre Hopkins. I think he only ended the game with six or eight targets, which is a little weird considering he's the go-to guy there. We hear Kyler come out after the game talking about the interception he threw 
against the Chargers in this game on a fourth down, and he said, quote, schematically, we were kind of bleeped, and you could fill in the bleep. And then afterwards, they start a little bit of a discussion, they being Kyler and former teammate Patrick Peterson. Patrick Peterson says, Kyler Murray don't care about nobody but Kyler Murray. Kyler Murray responds on social media, this isn't true, you want some weird bleep. You have my phone number. If you really felt like this as a big bro or a mentor, you're supposed to call me and tell me, not drag me so your podcast can grow. Um, Hilarious to me, honestly, that this is a public beef for some reason. I'm actually Team Kyler here. And I would like to hear a response from Peterson, if I'm being completely honest. Because if that was the case, and Peterson always felt that way, they were teammates. Were they not? Why did you not try to get in the kid's ear, you know? Say, hey, man, you're, you're the quarterback. You're supposed to be the star of this offense. You're supposed to be the team leader. you got to tone it down a little bit, young fella, so to speak. Um, it's intriguing to me that he would do it on a, something like a podcast, which is, I mean, hey, I have a podcast. Everybody's entitled to their opinion. Everybody's entitled to make it public. But it's very odd to do something like that in a situation like this, I would say... Um, however, you know, it is what it is. The reason I wanted to discuss this is because I've alluded to before, I think Cliff Kingsbury is on the hot seat, and I think this loss to L.A., which sinks them to 4-8 and eight in a competitive NFC West and fairly competitive hunt for a wildcard spot in the NFC as a whole, is, uh, it might be damning. I mean, we take a look at Kyler Murray's career, yeah? The 2019 season, 64% completion percentage, 20 touchdowns to 12 interceptions. Mind you, Cliff Kingsbury has been his coach all these seasons. Second year, they take a jump. They get to 8-8. Completion percentage goes up about three points. Touchdowns goes up a little bit. Passing yards goes up a little bit. The third year, his pass attempts go way down. From 558 to 481, because he misses two games. 9-5 as a starter. 3,800 yards. He was pacing for career highs in everything. But has he really blossomed, quote-unquote, into the star quarterback they thought they would have? I don't know. I think that's a good question, and it's something I always come back to on the show. It's the uh, reality that you need to have expectations that are realistic. Do they think Kyler Murray can be a superstar quarterback? Do they think he can be the be-all, end-all, and the reason that they are winning games? Or do they think, such as in this game against L.A., he can be complementary to a good running game with James Conner or, you know, doing enough? I'm not going to call him a game manager. I think he's more talented than that. But I'm not certain if your ownership or the front office that you'd necessarily be happy with the growth you've seen from Kyler. And that takes me directly into number five here. Number five in the standout seven, and it's it's just as to be a counterpoint. Let's talk about Tua Tungavailoa. Because I was one of the critics who saw Tua in his first two years and said, yeah, he's not really taking any risks. They're pretty basic throws. I wasn't really in love with the way he threw the deep ball. He was very accurate. He was very safe with the football. He had some of that just enough mobility to skirt around sacks here and there. 
I thought he was a perfectly capable quarterback. I didn't think he was going to take a step forward to where this year, if he had played all the games, I'm fairly confident he would be the leader in the MVP race. Right? Right now, through nine games played, he's at 2,564 yards, which is 100 yards less than what he had last year in 12 games. Right? Or sorry, 13, 12 starts. I forgot they had the weird thing with Fitzpatrick. 19 touchdowns already to 16 last year. His completion percentage has increased every season. 64% to 68% to pushing 70. He has just three interceptions. His QBR has doubled since his rookie year. Not that QBR is the be-all, end-all of quarterback stats, I know. But it's impressive to see the growth that he's had in this short period of time with Mike McDaniel. Now, you can make the argument... Well, they added Tyreek Hill. Last year, they added Jalen Waddle. They added so much talent around him. That's true. That is a true point. However, having talent around you doesn't always turn into statistics. Right? We've seen bad quarterbacks put up good stats with good teams. We've seen good quarterbacks put up good stats with bad teams. I mean, look, you don't have to look too far. We can take a look at Deshaun Watson... Last year, in Houston. Last year, Deshaun Watson threw for almost 5,000 yards. 33 touchdowns, 7 picks. Name the third leading receiver on that team. I won't give you the first one, because you know it's Brandon Cooks. I won't give you the second one, because I'm sure you know it's Will Fuller. Or you could guess it. Did you guess Randall Cobb? No, you didn't. Did you guess Jordan Aikens was fourth? Did you guess David Johnson was fifth? No. But he found a way to put up nearly 5,000 yards. So you can't just make the argument that, oh, well, they got talent around him. They've cultivated Tua's talent in addition to supplementing him. Sure, Tyreek Hill's having a historic season. I'll give you that one, obviously. Jalen Waddell is in a... I would say he's he's an elite receiver in the league. I would go that far as to say, I think he is, you know, I like to use the phrase, well, he's right now he's a number two, but he could be a number one. I think he could be a number one. But I think a duo with him and Tyreek Hill is deadly in terms of athleticism. It's arguably unrivaled, I think. It's, it's pretty clear. Um... <laughs> Either way, and then you add in Gesicki, you add in the fact that they've supplemented the running game. It's a damn good team. And I I think the point I was getting at here is McDaniel has done this with the addition of a superstar receiver, right? And you've seen the growth be exponential. Do you think that DeAndre Hopkins is a significantly worse wide receiver than Tyreek Hill? Let's take athleticism out of the equation, right? I would say Tyreek Hill is quicker, he's faster, but I would say DeAndre Hopkins, if we're doing route running and the just the pure ability to catch the ball, is pretty darn good, right? I would argue DeAndre Hopkins is the top five receiver in the league, right? I don't think that'd be a crazy argument to make. So when they brought in DeAndre Hopkins, we saw the Cardinals immediately become a great team, and here we are this year. They had a problem last year. 
end of the season, Hopkins was hurt. The offense went nowhere. And then Kyler was hurt, and then everything that happened, obviously, right? And the playoff game was an embarrassment. They come out this year, they know they're not going to have Hopkins. They traded for Hollywood Brown, but they just didn't do enough in those games where Hopkins was missing to stay competitive. And as an offensive-minded head coach, who else can you blame? Either you're going to fire your coordinator and say it was definitely his fault, or you might need a cardboard box at the end of the season. Keeping it in the theme of quarterback controversy, number six in the standout seven, let's talk about Green Bay for a second here. I thought Green Bay had a pretty good showing in that Sunday night football game against the Philadelphia Eagles. Was it Sunday? Yeah, Sunday night football. I thought they had a pretty good showing. They were only trailing at halftime 27-20. to 20. And honestly, we heard Coach LaFleur say it out off the rip. He said, yeah, we got to play some better defense. We got to stop turning the ball over. Well, I mean, it was two interceptions. It's not like you were fumbling the ball everywhere. The two interceptions from Rodgers really come back to bite you in a game that you lose by seven. Aaron Jones and A.J. Dillon did a decent job. They didn't run the ball too, too much, but they still wound up combining 12, excuse me, 20 carries for over 100 yards. How much can you do? Christian Watson found the end zone again. This is still a receiving core that's not good enough, right? That's not going to change in season. It's not, unless you call Odell Beckham and back up the Brinks truck and he's perfectly healthy. And we don't know if he is. It's just not going to change in season. So the question I raise is, knowing now what we know about Rodgers, I believe he had a rib injury and he had the thumb before, is it worth it to run Rodgers out there when you are sitting at 4-8, and eight, when the Vikings are about to clinch the division within the next week, if not the next two weeks? Is it worth it? You could say, well, we're paying him to be our starting quarterback. Yeah, that's fair. But why send him out there when you have a quarterback that you took in the first round in Jordan Love that you know almost nothing about? Almost nothing about his abilities as an NFL quarterback. He went 6-for-9 for a buck 13 and a touch in this game, and I'm telling you what, he looked pretty darn good doing it. He truly did. And it's intriguing to me that this is, I feel like they're not talking about it enough, that Rodgers said, oh, yeah, I expect to be out there. Yeah, I mean, I don't think that's really your decision, bud. Because if we're being completely honest, I'd rather give the keys to Jordan Love and see what happens over the next handful of games here. I'd rather send Jordan Love out there against the Chicago Bears and see what happens against a division rival that's not that good. I'd rather send Love out there against a Rams team that has some star power, but is beat up. Let's see what he could do on Christmas against a Dolphin team that is actually real good. And then he could play the Vikings, get a little bit of a taste, and end the year against Detroit at home. I think there's more value in figuring... And look, if he goes out there and he's horrible, then he's horrible. Then it was too soon. That's fine. But... Leaving him sitting on the bench not knowing isn't helping anyone. Especially considering we know already your receiving core is just not that great. Right? 
So what is it? We don't want to put them out there with this receiving court. Well, you put your starting quarterback out there with them. So it'd be a little bizarre to shield the backup, the young kid, from having to play with them, considering you you bet your whole season that one of them would develop and nobody developed fast enough. Now, who knows? Maybe they go on a run. Maybe that's the theme of today's episode. Who knows? Maybe they go on a run. Big optimism episode this week. But uh, I certainly wouldn't bet on it. And I would take my chances and give the keys to Jordan Love for the rest of the year. Next, quick thing to touch on here as we move into number seven. Uh, let's just talk about the semifinalists for the Pro Football Hall of Fame because, I mean, why not? We're going off of Adam Rank's list here, and we're reading them from top to bottom. He ranked them from, I believe, who he thinks should be in the Hall of Fame. Uh, Devin Hester's number one. I think Devin Hester's definitely a Hall of Famer. Joe Thomas, yeah, definitely Hall of Famer. Darrell Revis as well. Patrick Willis, I would argue, yeah, definitely a Hall of Famer. You know, cut his career short, but he did it on his own accord. Steve Smith Sr. probably should be in, considering the people that are in. James Harrison probably should be in as well, um, all things considered, because, I mean, come on, if they're going to keep showing that replay of him running back that pick of the Super Bowl, put him in, man. DeMarcus Ware is lower on J- than James Harrison on this list, which is really interesting to me, because I think DeMarcus Ware had a better career than James Harrison. I don't I don't know if it's because of the, the ring, you know, or the two rings, rather, for Harrison. I mean, I think DeMarcus Ware was dominant. Dwight Freeney, also below both of them. Dwight Freeney had a tremendous career. Uh, Torrey Holt, yeah, I could see it. Andre Johnson. Andre Johnson's an interesting one to me. I don't know if Andre Johnson's a Hall of Famer. I know the NFL, much like Major League Baseball and definitely the NBA, has kind of gone to a big hall sort of approach rather than a smaller, more compact inner circle Hall of Fame. That's completely fine. Andre Johnson was tremendous. He was just on a bad team. Uh, Jared Allen, again, it's a it could be a huge class for pass rushers, if I'm being completely honest, and somebody gets bumped to the back, and I guess by way of being Jared Allen and having played on teams that didn't get there, he has to get bumped. Zach Thomas, tremendous linebacker. I mean, just going to, you know, I'm about to stop going down this list because a lot of these guys are tremendous. I mean, down to Robert Mathis. I think if Freeney's in, Mathis will get in, right? Rodney Harrison's still on here. Um, Rondé Barber, real good one. Anquan Bolden, another great player. Fred Taylor, I don't know about Fred Taylor. Mm, I'm not sure about that one, but I'd have to look at the career rushing list. I'm sure he's a pretty darn solid candidate as well. Heinz Ward. Super Bowl MVP, uh, London Fletcher. We skipped through a few, but I just felt the need to touch on a handful of them and let you guys know who's coming up potentially in next year's Hall of Fame class. A little bit of news and notes before we get into the picks. Uh, Matt Rule, formerly of Carolina Panthers' recently fired fame, um, is going to be the head coach of the University of Nebraska, which is interesting to me that he's immediately back on the horse. Uh, Good for him. Um, Tristan Wirfs of the Buccaneers suffered an injury in last week's game, but his x-rays were negative. Uh, Allen Robinson of the Rams, done for the year. If he's done for the year, Cup is close to done for the year. They should shut down Stafford. Just pack it in, and we'll get out there next year. Uh, Eli Mitchell for the 49ers is injured as well. He's going to miss some time, I believe. Darnell Mooney of the Bears, likely done for the year. Jamar Chase, likely to be back this week for the big matchup with Kansas City. Uh, Aaron Donald, also suffered an ankle injury last week. 
Uh, six to eight weeks for Eli Mitchell, by the way. Von Miller to IR for the Bills, which is a huge one. Going to miss at least four games. And if you do the math, we're getting close to playoff time here. Uh, and Chauncey Gardner-Johnson of the Eagles out indefinitely was the last report I read. CJGJ, big acquisition for them. Didn't realize he was up near the top of the league, if not leading the league in interceptions. Good for him. Been a big part of this Eagles dominant run to start the year. Alrighty, that'll take us to the end of my standout seven, and we'll get pushing into my favorite part of the show, your favorite part of the show, the pick'em portion of this week's episode, and we'll get started with a one o'clock kick, the aforementioned Green Bay Packers at Chicago Bears matchup. Packers listing lineman David Bakhtiari is out for this one. Safety Darnell Savage is doubtful. Questionable wide receiver Romeo Dobbs and linebacker Devondre Campbell. Bears listing Trevor Simeon, their backup QB, is out for this game. The reports I was reading is that Justin Fields is a go. Offensive lineman Larry Borum going to miss this one as well. And two DBs, Jaquan Brisker and Kyler Gordon. Questionable, just two, Riley Reef on the O-line and Kendall Vilder in the secondary. Now, love or not, I think I'm going to wind up going Packers in this one. I think this would be a big win for Justin Fields. I I tend to think beating down the Packers while they're already down would go over pretty well in Chicago with Bears fans. So I was on the fence. I wanted to take Justin Fields in this one, but he missed the game last week. I was a little hesitant. Not really sure how healthy he's going to be. Obviously, it's a shoulder injury to the non-throwing shoulder, but for a guy with his mobility, it just takes going down wrong once for things to get a little iffy. I'm going to take the Packers to just run the ball, run the ball, run the ball, and walk out of Soldier Field with a W. Next, the Pittsburgh Steelers head to Atlanta to take on the fledgling Falcons, pushing for a playoff spot. Steelers going to be without Aquilo Witherspoon at corner. Questionable running back Jalen Warren and outside linebacker, defense player of the year candidate, TJ Watt. Every year. Probably not this year because of the injuries, but still worth listing. Uh, Falcons listing three as questionable. Offensive lineman Chuma Idoga. Defensive lineman Jalen Dalton and linebacker Arnold Ibekite. Um This is a weird one, because as much as I'm high on Atlanta, higher than most, I'm not high enough to pick them in certain matchups, and I kind of think the Steelers might have figured something out in that game against the Colts. Now, obviously, we didn't talk too much about this with the clock management and whatever. I didn't think it was really much of a story, because I didn't think... Either of those teams were going to go anywhere. Uh, but if we did give praise to Jeff Saturday the week before, we should rip him a little bit. It was weird clock management. Nevertheless, if you're not going to get the first down, you're not going to get the first down. What do you want me to tell you? Um, so that being said, I think they're going to, they being the Steelers here, I think the Steelers are going to take the momentum from that game. And I think they're actually going to walk into Atlanta and uh, come away with a victory. Next, the New York Jets head to Minnesota to try and bounce back and take down the Minnesota Vikings. Well, not bounce back. Actually, they won last week with Mike White. That's right. Big test for Mike White. Jets are going to be without safety. Ashton Davis, doubtful, running back Michael Carter, and lineman Cedric Ogbui. Questionable, another O-lineman, Dwayne Brown. Vikings going to be without tight end Ben Ellefson and offensive lineman Christian Darisaw. Questionable, D-lineman Ross Blacklock. I'm taking Minnesota in this game. Um, 
We saw this with Mike White last year, that he had the big, resounding, immediate victory, and then kind of a step back when the competition went up a little. Uh, I think we might see that again. Not saying Mike White's not a fairly talented QB, but let's be honest, I'm not taking Mike White to beat one of the best teams in the NFC. Give me the Vikings to win this one at home. Next, Battle of the Big Cats, as Trevor Lawrence leads the Jaguars to Detroit to take on the Lions. Jaguars listing Travis Etienne, their starting running back, as questionable, as well as backup back Daryl Henderson Jr., wide receiver Zay Jones, who we talked about before, and safety Andre Sisco. Lions listing two is out, linebacker Romeo Aquara and center Evan Brown. Normally, I would take Detroit in this game. In fact, I, I do... <sighs> With no ETN, I'm a little on the fence. I'm going to I'm gonna switch my pick here. I'm going to go Detroit. I wanted to say that, you know, Pittsburgh's got momentum with their young QB, and, and so does the Jaguars. So do the Jaguars, I should say. Uh, but I just can't do that. I mean, DeAndre Swift, Jamal Williams, Amon Ross St. Brown. I think there's more weaponry on Detroit, which is not something I get to say too often. But uh, to be quite honest, I think it's true. Uh, give me the Lions to win this one at home. And stay in the NFC playoff hunt somehow, by the way. Next, we got the A.J. Brown Bowl as the Titans head to Philly to take on the Eagles. Titans going to be without wide receiver Cody Hollister, linebacker Danico Autry, and corner Elijah Molden. Questionable, backup running back Hassan Haskins and D.N. Jeffrey Simmons. Eagles going to be without their midseason acquisition Robert Quinn and the aforementioned safety C.J. Gardner-Johnson. Um, I'm taking Philly in this game. I think this is a weird matchup. If this was a Super Bowl, I hesitate to say it might be one of the quickest Super Bowls played in recent memory because uh, both teams can try and run the ball, run the ball, run the ball. If forced into a passing situation, I'd have to default to Philly. They've got more weapons, though I have liked what I've seen from the Tennessee passing game uh, here and there this year. They just don't have the weaponry. Give me Philly to win this one at home. Next, speaking of... Players playing their old teams, the Cleveland Browns, head to Houston for the much-anticipated Deshaun Watson Bowl. He will make his return to the football field this week against his old team in his old stomping grounds. Uh, Browns going to be without tight end David Njoku. Texans going to be without wide receiver Brandon Cooks and corner Derek Stingley. Uh, questionable running back Rex Burkhead. Um, this one is interesting to me. I'm going to take Cleveland. I think Cleveland's the better team. But considering how everything went down with Deshaun Watson, I wonder if there isn't a little extra motivation for the Houston Texans in that locker room. Maybe to not go out there and get punked by your ex-QB who forced his way out of town and got suspended for not exactly being a great guy off the field. I'll take Cleveland, but it wouldn't shock me if Houston made this one competitive. Next, huge matchup in the NFC East in the 1 o'clock window. The Commanders head to New Jersey to take on the New York football Giants. Commanders going to be without their punt returner, Dax Milne. Milne? Milne? Get back to me on that one. Offensive lineman, Trey Turner, and corner, Benjamin St. Juice. Questionable, running back Antonio Gibson, huge one. And D-lineman, Chase Young. Giants going to be without offensive lineman Josh Ezudu, offensive lineman Shane Lemieux, and DB Adoree Jackson, which is a big one. Questionable, backup running back Gary Brightwell. Punt returner extraordinaire Richie James, wide receiver Darius Slayton, a huge one. 
Daniel Bellinger as well, the tight end who's coming back from the eye injury. Offensive lineman John Feliciano, linebacker Carter Coughlin, and DBs Darnay Holmes, Dane Belton, and Fabian Moreau. The Giants are beat up mentally, physically. I think the Commanders are hot right now. I think they go into New Jersey and come out in third place in the division. With a win, by the way, in case that wasn't clear. I know it's a crowded division. Not everybody's keeping up with the NFC East. Give me Washington on the road. Next in our last 1 o'clock kick, the Denver Broncos ride into Baltimore to take on the Baltimore Ravens. Broncos going to be without wide receiver K.J. Hamler, tight end Andrew Beck, D-lineman Jonathan Harris, and linebacker Dakota Allen. Questionable, two wideouts, Cortland Sutton and Jerry Judy. Like you could afford to have even less talent at skilled positions in Denver, uh, as well as corner K. Juan Williams. Ravens going to be without wide receiver Tylen Wallace. Questionable, their left tackle Ronnie Stanley, linebacker Del Sean Phillips, safety Kyle Hamilton, and corner Marlon Humphrey. I'm not taking Baltimore to lose to two bad teams in a row. Give me the Ravens to win this one at home. Next, our first of two 405 kicks is the Mike McDaniel Bowl. As the Dolphins, led by Coach McDaniel, head to Santa Clara to take on the 49ers. Dolphins going to be without offensive lineman Austin Jackson with an ankle injury. Doubtful. Another offensive lineman, Teron Armstrad. Questionable, their backup QB Teddy Bridgewater and running back Miles Gaskin. Niners, as we said, without Elijah Mitchell in this game. Questionable, Debo Samuel, huge one. Offensive lineman Trent Williams, arguably just as huge. Uh, Guard Spencer Burford and D-lineman Charles Omenehu. I'm actually going to take Miami to win this one on the road because I'm not 100% confident we're going to see Debo Samuel out there. In those situations where you've got Samuel and McCaffrey on the field at the same time and Kittle, I'm fairly confident that Garoppolo and Shanahan can find a way to matriculate the ball down the field. You take one of them out of the equation, especially Debo Samuel, who's arguably the best of the three. It's going to be interesting. I think this Dolphins team could put up some points, and I think they will do so for their coach and bring it home on the road. Our other 405 kick is an NFC West matchup, which lost a little bit of its luster due to injuries. The Seattle Seahawks will head down to L.A. to take on the Rams. Uh, Questionable for the Seahawks, running back Travis Homer, safety Josh Jones, and safety Ryan Neal. The Rams going to be without Matthew Stafford, wide receiver Lance McCutcheon, D-lineman Aaron Donald, linebacker Terrell Lewis, and Travis Howard, as well as Cooper Cup, Allen Robinson, Tory Holt, Marshall Falk. I mean, nobody's coming through that door. Questionable, center Brian Allen, linebacker Ernest Jones, and corner Troy Hill. I think Seattle should be able to win this one and keep themselves in playoff contention. Next, we've got an AFC West showdown as we kick off the 425 window, which has two big ones. The Chargers head to Vegas to take on the Raiders. Mind you, we just talked about before how close their first game was. Uh, Chargers going to be without wide receiver Mike Williams again and center Corey Winsley. Excuse me, Lindsley. Um, questionable, D-lineman Braden Fajoko, linebacker Drew Tranquil, and safety Nasir Adderley. Raiders going to be without tight end Jesper Horstead and D-end Kendall Vickers. Questionable, their lead back Josh Jacobs, their backup back Brandon Bolden. Guard Lester Cotton, D-lineman Andrew Billings, and linebacker Denzel Perriman. The Chargers offense has, I feel like they haven't been full strength or clicking the entire season. It's got to click eventually if they're ever going to make a push into the postseason. 
Maybe it'll get clicking this week. I'm taking the Chargers to win this one on the road. Though, to be honest, I don't know. This Raider team, couple blades of grass one way or the other, like we said before. Next, we've got the game of the week, and I don't think this one is... Uh, we've got some good games. We've got some great games. Miami and San Fran. I mean, but this is Kansas City playing the Cincinnati Bengals in Cincinnati. Chiefs going to be without wide receiver Kadarius Toney. Questionable, DB Dion Bush with an elbow. Bengals listing Jamar Chase and Joe Mixon, both as questionable, as well as linebacker Logan Wilson. I'm going to take Kansas City in this game because I've liked what I've seen from them significantly more this year than what I've seen from Cincinnati. Cincinnati's been kind of inconsistent. I also think Kansas City's got a little bit of chip on their shoulder in this one. They think they should have beat them in the regular season game last year. Came down to a penalty near the red zone, if memory serves, and then Cincinnati ran out the clock. Then the over the overtime game in the playoffs, Kansas City had that game in their hands. I'm going to pick the Chiefs in this one, but if they lose this one, I'm going to start to think that it's a little bit of a mental thing that the Bengals might be in their head. Give me Kansas City to avoid, you know, losing three straight to a team. I don't think that's happened in the Mahomes era. Next... The Sunday night football game, we've got the Jeff Saturday-led Indianapolis Colts heading into Jerry World to take on the Dallas Cowboys. Colts going to be without their right tackle, Braden Smith, and corner Kenny Moore. Questionable, tight end Jelani Woods, and another corner, Isaiah Rogers. Questionable for the Cowboys, the man who was killing the Giants on Thanksgiving, Michael Gallup. Uh, then some defensive injuries, D-lineman Demarcus Lawrence, D-tackle Quinton Bohanna, linebacker Anthony Barr, and safety J. Ron Curse. Also, all listed as questionable. Um, I'm going to take Dallas in this game. I mean, you know, it's hard to look at Indy and think that they could go out there and win this one. If it was at the beginning of the year, I would be like, yeah, of course they could. They're plenty talented. They could run the ball with Jonathan Taylor and then make enough throws when it counted. And part of me still believes that, but it's it's really hard in practice to think that that's realistically going to happen for that reason, especially also because they're in Jerry world. I'm going to take Dallas to win this one at home. Next, our Monday night football game, the new Orleans saints led by Andy Dalton still, for some reason, um, head to Tampa Bay to take on these stumbling Tampa Bay Buccaneers. I'm going to take the bucks. I don't understand at all the, the troubles that this team gives Tom Brady. I can't pretend to understand, but I can't also pretend to think that they're going to continue. Give me Tampa Bay to win this one at home. Next, we've got our Week 14 Thursday night football matchup between the Vegas Raiders and the LA Rams. And this one would have been spicy. Beginning of the year, I was looking forward to this game. Rams are beat up. Raiders not really playing for too, too much, but they've got more to play for than the Rams. Give me the Raiders to win this one on the road. That'll bring us to the end of the pick'em portion of this week's episode and the end of this episode, number 152, of the Necessary Roughness podcast, presented by Last Word on Sports. Thank you for joining us. Join us again next weekend. You know, As always, I appreciate it. If it's your first time listening, 152nd time, join us next weekend. Hopefully we'll put on another great show for you. As always, I'm your host, Nicholas Donatic, signing off.